Good morning. Thank you, Luke. It's Christmas in August, right? <laughs> I love that you're singing some of those songs that we've always dubbed Christmas songs when they're actually very scriptural songs. And it's odd that we would be doing Emmanuel in August, but that's just kind of the way things worked out. And I, I hope that this morning is not an academic exercise only. When I was putting together this lesson, Luke actually sent me a text early in the week. We communicate about what songs to, to do and all that. And he said, man, it's hard to find songs about Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And I said, well, do your best. But uh, hopefully, this is not just a research paper this morning that I delivered to you. Hopefully, you will find our place in the story of being the Emmanuel, God's people. You know, many years ago, there was a sub that was struck by a ship, and that submarine sank to the bottom of the ocean. And there were other ships in the area that came to its rescue. Divers went down, and one diver actually put his ear to the side of the sub to see to, if he could hear anything coming from the inside. And what he heard was tapping, and he recognized it as Morse code. And the message that was being tapped out from the inside was this. Is there any hope? That is a question that has cried out through the ages, hasn't it? Is there any hope? Throughout adverse circumstances and various trials, this refrain can be heard. Is there any hope? It's a question that was burning in the minds of God's people and in their hearts as they faced defeat and captivity at the hands of the day's superpower, which was Assyria. Look with me at chapter 7 of Isaiah, beginning in verse 10. It says, Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time. He is, knows enough to refuse evil and do good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Our theme on Sunday mornings all this year has been Jesus is. And the idea is we want to get to know Jesus better. And if we're going to know Jesus better, we don't start in the Gospels. We don't start with the Gospel of Matthew. We start in the Old Testament. We start with Isaiah. Maybe we even start before then, but certainly we go to Isaiah because Isaiah prophesied during the time of exile when the northern kingdom was destroyed and Israel was carried away into captivity by Assyria. During this time, the southern kingdom was also under threat of being destroyed and being carried away by the Babylonians. And so, God tells the people to trust in Him and not in military might. Judah will eventually be carried away into exile. So this theme of exile or being driven out to the east runs throughout Isaiah. We see it run throughout the Bible at times, too. In Genesis, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. They were driven out to the east from the Garden of Eden. And so God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah and he makes clear that all injustice is going to be punished, that the oppressed will be set free and the oppressors will be judged. In other words, God is going to use evil nations to bring forth judgment and punishment, but even those evil nations are not going to get off the hook. They will pay for their deeds and the oppressors will pay, the oppressed will be set free. However, 
It does seem that Israel is going to receive the brunt of the punishment. But this is not all doom and gloom. There is hope on the horizon. Again, redemption and renewal are major themes throughout all of Scripture. And what we see here in Isaiah is definitely a silver lining. God is going to swallow up the veil that was spread over the nations. He is going to swallow up death forever. God, through Israel, is executing a plan to bring humanity back from exile and give them the land of inheritance where there will be no more death. Of course, not everyone's going to buy into this plan. Even though God is waiting with open arms, some will not embrace him. Some will turn their backs on him, and God knows this. God knows and recognizes that some will not buy in. Notice how the book of Isaiah ends. I, notice, I know we're jumping way ahead, but Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22 and following says, For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. So, the hope and the anticipation starts to build. It starts here. It starts in the Old Testament. It starts with Israel. And of course, it's going to come to a crescendo with Jesus Christ. He is the one that the prophets like Isaiah spoke of. And of course, you can turn over to Isaiah chapter 53 sometime and you can read a more vivid depiction of what this Messiah is going to be like. But the reason why Isaiah is often referred to as the Messianic prophet is because he has much to say about the coming Messiah and what it means for Israel and what it means for us. Now, all that being said, I do not believe that Isaiah chapter 7 verses 14 through 16 are talking about Jesus. Hang on, stay with me. I do not believe that is who is being talked about in Isaiah chapter 7. We've seen the bigger picture. We've observed it. And so now we're going to zero in a little bit. Kind of like when I'm sitting in the deer stand and I spot a deer and I take that scope and I'm sighting it in and I'm zeroing in even closer. That's what we're doing, okay? So we're going to sight in even closer and the scene is set for us in verses 1 and following of Isaiah 7. Look at it with me. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him, take care and be calm, have no fear and do not be faint hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has planned evil against you saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabeel as the king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. 
That's a lot. But here are the circumstances, okay? Ahaz is the king over Judah. Rezin is the king over Syria. And Pekah is the king over Israel. They have allied together to go to war against Judah. Ahaz and the people are fearful. God tells Isaiah to take his son, whose name is Shear Jashub, which means a remnant will return. And he tells him to go and prophesy to Ahaz. And here's the message that they are to send to the king of Judah. Do not be afraid. Pekah and Rezin are nothing more than smoldering firebrands and their light, their fire is going to go out. They have no future. Pekah and Rezin plan to overthrow Ahaz and put their own man on the throne of Judah. And this is a threat to the dynasty of David. Remember, God made a covenant with David that his throne will last through eternity. And God's not going to let anybody thwart that plan. There's no way God is going to let somebody overthrow his plan. And so Ahaz had nothing to fear. The people had nothing to fear. But Ahaz does not take God at his word. He doesn't trust God. Instead, he devises his own plan, which is a problem, right? So he's at a crossroads. Trust God or trust in his own plan. God's people are facing the same decision. And verse 9 states, if you will not believe, you surely shall not last. And the you here is plural. So this message is to all of God's people and not just to the king. And the message is clear. If you stand with God, you have no reason to fear. But if you don't stand with God, you have every reason to shake in your sandals. Then the Lord does something very interesting. The Lord tells Ahaz to test him. Go ahead, ask me for a sign. I'll give you a sign. Test me. And Ahaz refuses to do so. Ahaz does not respond with a statement of trust, but rather a statement of rebellion. He has no interest in trusting God. You can read 2 Kings chapter 16 sometime, and you can see the plan that Ahaz devised for himself, but he actually called on Assyria to help him defend against the coalition between Syria and Israel. And now, as you can imagine, God is not happy with Ahaz's response. But God doesn't need Ahaz to buy in. He doesn't have to buy in. He's fine on his own. He doesn't need Ahaz. He tried to bring him along and Ahaz refused. And so God's plan is going to be carried out regardless. Ahaz now is on the wrong side of history. God is against him now. And that's not a good place to be. I don't care what enemy is against you. It's not as bad as God being against you. God is going to present a sign anyway. And this sign will not only be for Ahaz, but for the people as well. And here's the sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So, is Isaiah talking about Jesus? Yes and no. There is dualistic prophecy here. Ahaz represents the house of David, but the fact that the you in this prophecy is plural means that this is a sign not only for him, but for all the people as well, and the future kings who are going to rule over Judah. So this obviously points to Jesus, right? Again, consider that the two kings that Ahaz dreads will be deserted before the boy even knows how to refuse good and evil. 
Since Ahaz did not trust in the Lord, God is going to give him a sign to show the end of the two nations that he feared. And he will use Assyria, the nation that Ahaz trusted over God, to bring destruction against him. So this is not something that's going to come to fruition some 700 years later in the person of Jesus. This is going to happen soon. It's going to happen soon. Isaiah is speaking about events that are going to occur in his lifetime. The point of this sign from the Lord is to show that Ahaz's fear is misplaced. God is going to destroy the two nations that oppose Judah before the boy even knows how to refuse evil and choose good. And along with this, Isaiah is also pointing out that the lineage of David is going to remain intact, that God is going to maintain his covenant promise. But we have a bit of an issue, don't we? If Isaiah is talking about things that will soon take place, then what's the whole virgin birth thing? I mean, we don't read about two virgin births in the Bible, so what's all this have to do with Jesus? Well, the word Isaiah uses for virgin here is a very interesting word. And it's a word that's very complicated, at least for us to translate into English. The Hebrew word is alma, and it is a word that has a few different nuances. There is the idea of a young unmarried woman who is of marrying age. There is a separate word that means virgin that Isaiah does not use here. There is also a separate word for young woman that Isaiah chooses not to use. A reader in Isaiah's day would read it this way. A virgin who is a maiden would conceive a child. Now, Vine's Expository Dictionary of Old and New Testament Words points out that this was a possible but irregular rendering of the word since the term can refer to the unmarried status of the one so described. He also says that the reader of Isaiah's day would have been extremely uncomfortable with this particular use of the word since its primary connotation is virgin rather than maiden. All that being said, I think it's clear from the context as well as the Hebrew terminology, that the woman and son under consideration here is not Jesus, but rather a child that is to be born as a sign to Ahaz. And the message, I think, is much clearer than the term. By the time this particular woman bears a child and begins to raise him, the enemies of Judah will all but be taken care of. You look at chapter 8 of Isaiah, beginning in verse 1, it reads like this. Then the Lord said to me, Take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters. Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey, and I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, Name him Meher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Again, the Lord spoke to me further, saying, Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoice in Rezin and the son of Ramalia, now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. Then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck, and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. God is about to break the alliance between Syria and Israel. And he's going to do it with the nation of Assyria. 
Notice the name of the son that was to be born. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Those of you about to have children and want to give your child a biblical name, why not Meher Shalal Hashbaz, right? You call him Baz for short. The name means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. Names always mean something in the Bible. In fact, they're usually tied to a person's destiny. So God is using the son's name to communicate his plan. Meher Shalal Hashbaz is a name of victory. Victory over, victory over Israel and Syria by Assyria. It is also a sign that Ahaz should have entrusted God and not his own plan. Notice verse 8 again. And the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Assyria is coming to flood the nation of Judah like a river that has broken its levee. The land will be filled with the invading army. But take a look at verses 9 and 10. It reads, Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered, and give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand. For God is with us. There is hope on the horizon. The counsel of the wicked will come to nothing. And do you know why? Because God is with them. God is with his people. These were the people of God, the Emmanuel, and therefore evil would not triumph. They would enjoy victory. Isaiah's Emmanuel is a sign of hope for God's people that despite the doom and devastation, God will be with them and they will be victorious. And Matthew's Emmanuel shows us the very same thing. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, is the announcement to Joseph that fulfills this prophecy. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. If that doesn't make the hair on the back of your neck stand up, then maybe you need to check yourself for a pulse, because this is amazing stuff. Do you see the dual imagery here? Even when defeat seems imminent, even in their darkest hour, even though Assyria will flood the land, it is still Emmanuel's land. God is not going to abandon his people. Isaiah all but dared future attackers to invade Judah. He warned them that they would be broken and shattered and that their counsel would not stand. Why? Because God was with them. And we have the same promise. Because do you know who we are? We are the Emmanuel. God with us. We are the people of God. And do you know we have an enemy as well, right? We talked about that enemy last week. Who is our enemy? Well, sin and death, right? Sin, and what does sin bring about? It brings about death. And that is the final enemy, the one that will be destroyed in the end. We are no match for that enemy on our own. We have no way to stand against that enemy on our own. But thanks be to God that we don't have to. That our Emmanuel assures us victory. The fact that we stand on the side of God, God is with us. The one who saves us from sin and death. We are the Emmanuel. You see, the enemy is doomed because God is with his people. That was the message that God delivered to his people through the prophet Isaiah. And that is certainly the message that is delivered to us as well. 
God fights for his people. And the fact that God is on our side means it's not even a fair fight to begin with. We win. When I was a kid, my dad was a crop duster. He was an instructor. And he decided to take me up in a Cessna 172. For whatever reason, my mother wanted to go with us, even though she was scared of flying. She sat in the back seat. I sat in the co-pilot seat. My dad, of course, in the pilot seat. And my dad thought it would be a good idea if we got to a certain altitude and he just put the plane in a stall and then get me to recover it. He thought that was the best lesson to teach because he said planes want to fly. They're not going to just fall out of the air. So get, get out of that uh, scariness right off the bat, right? So he puts the plane in a stall. The stall horn is going off. My mother is hysterical in the back seat, screaming and crying, and my dad is laughing hysterically. And he says, Chris, block out everything. Remember what we've taught you. I was eight years old. Remember what we've taught you. Bring the plane back under control. And I did, probably with a little help from him. I don't ever remember being scared in that moment. My mother was frantic. And maybe, maybe I just wasn't old enough to know any better. But I think the better reason is because my dad was sitting in the pilot seat. I wasn't in the pilot seat. I knew that at any point my dad could take over that plane and restore it. He's laughing hysterically. Why should I be afraid? And that, my friends, is the difference that the father makes. Fear takes a back seat when he's in control. That's the power of hope. And so I would say to you this morning, to those who are battling cancer, to those who are facing death, to those who are dealing with depression, to the man or woman who is going through a divorce, to the one who has lost their job recently, to the widows and the widowers, to the couple who has suffered a miscarriage, to those who are weeping at an open grave, hear the word of the Lord. Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered. And give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand. For God is with us. And because God is with us, the enemy cannot stand. The enemy will be overcome. Is there any hope? You better believe it. Can we help you this morning? Do you need hope? Do you need prayer? You ready to take the next step in faith? Do that this morning. You have hope. Cling to it. Luke's going to lead us in a prayer. Excuse me, in a song. You already led us in a prayer. Thank you for doing that. He's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you in some way, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.